you've probably heard that the way you think creates the way you feel. And in particular, if you've got messed up thinking, then it's going to create some messed up feelings. In today's episode, we're going to be covering what's known as cognitive distortions. These are the specific ways that have been identified that we can think that are messed up. So you're going to find out what they are, learn how to identify them, and learn what to do about it, all in today's episode. And just to be clear, even though I just accused you of maybe having messed up thinking, I mean, we all have it, I do too, and this podcast is about helping you just up-level your game so that you can have the best relationship possible. And if you're finding Relationship Alive to be helpful for you, please consider a donation to help support the podcast and ensure that we can continue. In order to choose something that feels right for you, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, I would like to thank Kevin, Sophie, and Trisha. Thank you so much for your generous donations to keep us going. Now, when you notice messed up thinking or cognitive distortions in your partner or in other people in your life, how do you communicate with them about it in a way that's going to be effective, that's going to keep you connected to that person? If you're not sure, then check out my free guide to my top three relationship communication secrets. These three things can make the difference between it going over horribly or it going really well and actually becoming something that builds your connection with the other person. So to pick up that guide, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And two quick last things. First, if you haven't checked out last week's episode yet that I recorded with Chloe, all about how to have fun and humor and lightness in your relationship, even if things have gotten a little stale, or especially how to do it when things are hard and serious, then make sure you check out last week's episode. And lastly, Come find us in the Relationship Alive community. There are more than 1,300 of us who are gathered to support you in having an amazing, thriving relationship. So just join us in the Relationship Alive community on Facebook. I think that's it. So now let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. On today's show, we're going to cover ways that your thinking can be distorted and by being distorted can impact the way you feel, the way you behave, the way you interact with other people, and basically get in the way of you being an effectively functioning human being. I'm talking about cognitive distortions, and they've been mentioned a little bit on the show before, but I wanted to take this opportunity to dive deeply into the ways that our thinking can just be kind of messed up, 
And from that messed upness, and no, that is not a technical term, um, comes all sorts of problems. From today's show, what my hope is for you is that you understand these things well enough so that you can spot them happening in your own thinking and perhaps in the thinking and reasoning of those around you. And we're going to talk about effective strategies for changing the pattern. And in order to do that, we have with us today a fortunate return visit from Dr. David Burns, who was on the show back in episode 98 where we talked about how to stop being a victim in your relationship. And this was an episode that was all based on David's work in a book called Feeling Good Together. Um, and if you're interested in hearing that, you can go to neilsatin.com slash feeling good. And what I wanted to talk about today relates to some of the pioneering work that David did in popularizing cognitive behavioral therapy um, primarily uh, through his book, Feeling Good, which is, has sold millions of copies all over the world and has been prescribed and shown to actually help people with depression simply by reading the book and going through the exercises. So I'm very excited to have David with us today. We're going to talk about cognitive distortions. We're probably going to touch on uh, team therapy, which is his latest evolution that's, um, that's attacking some of the problems with cognitive behavioral therapy and hear about some of the amazing results that that's getting and, and get some insight into how that even works. So without any further ado, let us dive right in. David Burns, thank you so much for joining us again here on Relationship Alive. Thanks, Neil. I'm absolutely uh, delighted to be on your podcast uh, I, for, for, for two reasons. First, I think you're a, uh, a tremendous host. You know your stuff, both technically and you know my background you do your homework. That's that's very flattering to to me being interviewed, but also you you seem to exude a lot of warmth and integrity, and so it's just a pleasure to to hang out with you a, a little bit uh, today, and and your many many listeners. Thank you, thank you so much, and I appreciate your saying that. Um, this stuff is important to me. I'm hoping that this podcast makes a big difference in the world. And the way that we do that is through being able to feature amazing work like what you do. And I don't want to uh, forget to mention that you also have your own podcast, the Feeling Good podcast, um, that has amazing insight into the work that you're doing. In fact, you you record sessions with people so people can actually hear you working with clients and then explaining how you did what you did and what and and also getting direct feedback from the people that you're working with. So that's a fascinating show and and um how many episodes have you put out at this point? Um I think Fabrice and I are up to roughly 60 uh, in the range of 60. And one really neat bit of feedback we're getting is that a lot of therapists now are requiring their patients to listen to the Feeling Good podcasts. There, there's been a lot of research on my book, Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy, and studies have shown that if you just hand the book to someone with moderate to severe depression, 60% of them, 65% of them will improve dramatically within four weeks. And that that's really 
really good news. It's called bibliotherapy or reading therapy. But now we're getting this. I'm getting the same kind of feedback from people who are listening to the to the podcasts and saying that just listening to the Feeling Good podcast has had a dramatic effect on their depression or their obsessive compulsive disorder or uh, whatever is is bothering them. So I'm I'm hoping that 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 trend will will continue. Yeah, someone's going to have to study uh, podcastio therapy. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and you uh, may be having the same thing, Neil, on your relationship uh, broadcast from people with troubled relationships. Uh, you know, following the information and the techniques you provide, and and perhaps uh, experiencing genuine improvement in their relationships, greater intimacy and love. Absolutely. I'm getting that kind of feedback all the time from listeners. And, uh, and I also hear that therapists, uh, particularly couples therapists are, uh, having their clients listen to the show and even sometimes prescribing specific episodes for them to listen to. So, um, it feels really good to be able to be an adjunct part of people's uh, progress and therapy. Congrats. That's great. That's a real credit to the, the quality of what you're offering. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's dive in. Enough, enough kudos, although it does feel really good. Um, though I guess that doesn't surprise me considering you're the author of Feeling Good. Um, quick point of clarification. Is it the just handing of the Feeling Good book that has a 60 to 65% improvement rate or did the people actually have to read some of it to get you know, that? All they have to do is touch it. The improvement comes through <laughs> osmosis and many of those who have read it have gotten worse. <laughs> uh, they don't have good data on that. In the studies, they've, they, they, it's people coming to a medical center for the treatment of depression and in the original studies, they, they said that they had to be on a waiting list for four weeks uh, and during the four weeks, r- read this book. And then they continued to test them uh, every week with various depression tests. And half the patients went to some kind of control group who were on a waiting list control for four weeks, or they gave them some other book to read, like Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And in all of the studies, the, the patients who were given a copy of Feeling Good two-thirds of them had improved so much within four weeks that they didn't need to have treatment anymore at the medical center, so they never got antidepressants or, or psychotherapy. And then, then they've done follow-up, up to two-year follow-up uh, studies on these patients as well, and for the most part, they've continued to do well or even improve more and have not had significant relapses. The alternative groups who got, like Viktor Frankl's book, uh, did, did not show significant improvement or people on, on, on waiting list controls. So they were pretty well done studies sponsored by research from uh, – sponsored by National Institute of Mental Health and other you know, research you know, research groups. Forrest Scogan is a clinical psychologist of University of Alabama, and he pioneered a lot of these these studies, but there have been probably at least a dozen replications of that finding that have been published now with teenagers, with elderly people, and with, with, with people in between. Yeah, and I want to just say your book, despite having been published... A little while ago now, 
um, is eminently readable and I did read it a while ago. In fact, I think it was one of the first, you know, quote unquote self-help books that I stumbled across, um, probably around when I was graduating from college. And, and in sitting down and revisiting it in preparation for our conversation today, I was just struck by how personable, you know, for a book that's, you know, about cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, which is something that I think just calling it that probably turns a lot of people off. You bet. Um, the, the truth is that like reading it through, it just makes so much sense. And, and I love how you bring humor into the subject and, and in many ways talk about your, talk about yourself, you know, as a, as a, an author, or as a, you know, in, in some of the, some of the quizzes around, um, the kind of thoughts that undermine our, our self-esteem. And anyway, it's just, I, I definitely recommend it. If you're not one of the, you know, millions of people who have already read it, you should pick it up. And if you are, I would suggest picking it up again to just glean again what, what more is there. And we're, we're going to talk about one of the central um, topics in the book, which is how our thinking affects the way we feel. And um, maybe we just start there because um, that was one place where I even, in, upon revisiting, I got a little confused. And in the past, that's made total sense to me. Yeah, of course. Like, I, I make something mean something, and that, that gives me an emotional response to it, um, which ironically makes me think of Viktor Frankl's work. At the same time, um, I know that we're, we have feelings that just like our bodies kick in with emotional responses in a split second, um, you know, when something happens and that seems to precede thought. So how do you, how do you parse that apart in a way that makes sense? Well, the basis of cognitive therapy and kind of, we've moved on to something new called team therapy or team CBT. But I think the basis of cognitive therapy, which as far as it goes, it's still pure gold, goes back to the Buddha, uh, 2,500 years ago and to the Greek philosophers like Epictetus 2,000 years ago that humans are disturbed not by things but by the views we take of them, that you have to interpret uh, an event in in a particular way uh, before you can have an emotional reaction to it. And and this thought is so basic uh, that our thoughts create all of our moods. We create our emotional reality at every moment of every day by the way we interpret things. But the, that's such a basic idea that many people can't get it or, or, or they don't, don't believe it. Uh, I had an example of, uh, of this at my uh, workshop in the East Coast recently. I was in a hotel, and I've had many afflictions myself in my life, so I, I love to treat people with depression or anxiety because whatever they have, I, I can say, oh, I've been there myself, and I can show you the way out of the woods. But uh, I, I, when I was little, I had the fear of heights, and then I got over it completely as a teenager uh, through a high school teacher had me stand on the top of a tall ladder until my fear disappeared and it took about 15 minutes and it was dramatically effective. But suddenly my anxiety went from 100 to zero and I was free. But it crept back in uh, because I stopped going up on heights 
not out of avoidance, just I had no no reason to. And then suddenly I realized it had returned. And I was on a uh, hotel, had one, one of these glass elevators, and I was going up to the 14th floor. And I was looking down into the elevator, and I had no emotional reaction whatsoever. And it was because I was telling myself, and this was automatic, I guess, but you're safe. Uh, however, if there hadn't been that glass there, and it would have been the same elevator going up and looking out, I would have been paralyzed with fear and and terror and it would have been a total body experience that I can feel in my whole body this 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 extreme uh, terror mm-hmm. and so that's the first idea that that you can't have an emotional reaction without having some kind of thought or or interpretation uh, you 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 feel the way you think your thoughts create all of your moods uh, after feeling good came out I got a letter from a therapist in Philadelphia. He was a student therapist at the Philadelphia Marriage Council, I believe. And and he said he had read my book, Feeling Good, How Your Thoughts Create All of Your Moods. And he said, well, uh, that's a great idea, uh, but how can it be true? If you're on a railroad track with a train coming and, the, and you're about to get killed, you're going to feel terrified. And you don't have to put a thought in your mind. It's just an automatic re- reaction, and so he said, "I don't believe your your claim that only your thoughts can create your moods." And I got that letter, and I started thinking. I said, "Gosh, what he's saying is so obvious. How could I have missed that when I when I wrote that book?" And I felt kind of embarrassed and ashamed, and uh, and and then I was uh, a couple days after I got that letter, I was in a taxi coming home from the airport. And at a certain place on River Road, uh, you, you go over this railroad track. And I looked down the railroad track. I saw there was a car driving on the railroad track at about two miles an hour. Bumpity, bumpity, bump. And I looked then in the other direction. And this is uh, freight trains come through here. They never stop. They come at 65 miles an hour. And I saw one about a mile and a half in the other direction, I said, man, that guy's going to get smashed by the train. And so I told the taxi driver, stop, I'm going to try to get that guy off the railroad tracks. And I, so I ran up and knocked on the window and he rolled down the window and there was this older man there and he said, can you please direct me to City Line Avenue? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, City Line Avenue is 10 miles in the other direction, but you're on the railroad tracks and there's a train coming. You've got to back up, back up to get to the road because you know he was beyond the road he you know how they have like a pile of rocks that the railroad tracks uh-huh. are on that's yeah. kind of where he was and i said back up i'm gonna get you off of the off the railroad tracks and so he backed up and and he kept i said now when he got to the road i said now turn and t- turn your car so you and i'm finally i had him positioned to where just the the nose of the car the the front part of the car was over the tracks and i was standing in front of him now the the train was about maybe 20 seconds from impact and they had their whistle on and, 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 and so I was waving my hands like back up, back up. Like, you know, you just back up five, five feet and you'll, it'll save you. 
And instead, the guy started creebling forward very slowly. <laughs> oh, no. And the train smashed into him at the side of his car at about 60 miles an hour. Oh, my goodness. And actually ripped the car in half. And the front compartment was thrown about 30 feet from the tracks. And, and, the, and they had their brakes on. The train was skidding to a stop. And I ran over again to the, the driver's compartment and, and looked in, it was all, you know, smashed windows. And I thought you know, I'd see a decapitated corpse, but it hit probably an inch behind his head. And it hit so fast, it, it kind of had just cut the car in half. And, and he didn't seem to be that injured or anything. And he, he looked at me and smiled and said, which way exactly did you say now to City Line Avenue? And I said, you got to be kidding me. I said, you were just hit by a train. And he said, I was not. He says, that's ridiculous. And I says, oh, yeah, what happened to the windows of your car? And then he looked and he noticed all the windows were smashed and there was glass all over them. And he says, gosh, it looks like somebody broke my windows. And I said, look, where's the back seat? Where's the back half of your car? And he turned around. He saw the back half of his car was missing. And, and he looked at me and he says, I think you're right. Half of my car seems to have di di disappeared. He says, where is this train? I said, look, it's right there. It's 20 feet from here. And now the conductors were rushing up and the en engineers. And, and he looked at me and he says, this is great. And I says, why is, why is that? Why is this great? He says, well, maybe I can sue. <laughs> and I said, you'll be lucky if they don't sue you. You were driving down the railroad tracks. And I couldn't understand it. And at this point, the, you know, the police cars came, the ambulance, they put him in an, an ambulance. I gave my story to the police. He looked just fine. And they took him to the Bryn Mawr Hospital. And I was just scratching my head. And uh, I got in the taxi. I was just a mile from home. The taxi driver took me the rest of the way home. And I, I was saying, what in the heck happened? And the next day, I was, I was jogging around that same corner. And of course, there was all this litter from the car and broken pieces of metal and glass all over the place. And there was a younger guy, maybe 50 years old or something like that, going through the rubble. And, and I, I stopped and, and, and uh, you know, asked him who he was. And he says, oh, he says, um, there, my father was almost killed by a train here yesterday and, and somebody saved his life. And I was just checking out the scene. And I, I said, oh, well, that was me, uh, actually. I, I, he was, and I said, I didn't understand it. He was driving down the railroad track, and if I hadn't you know, gotten there, I, I think he would have been killed. And I, I said, I didn't know, why was he driving down the railroad track? And he says, well, my father uh, has had uh, Alzheimer's disease, and he lost his driver's license and 10 years ago, but he forgot. And after dinner, he snuck out. He grabbed the keys and snuck out and decided to take the car for a drive. And so here is the same situation, uh, a train about to kill somebody uh, on a railroad track, about to smash into you. And I had the thought, this guy's in danger. He could be killed. So I was experiencing 100% terror and anxiety and fear. But his thought was different. His thought was, this is great. I might be able to sue and get a great deal of money. And therefore, he was feeling joy and, and euphoria. Same situation, 
different thoughts and radically different emotions. And that's what I mean, and that's what the Buddha meant 2,500 years ago when we say that only your thoughts can create your emotions. It's not what happens to you, but the way you think about it that creates every positive and negative emotion. Did you ever did you ever write back to that um, the person who wrote you you know about that train uh, theory <laughs> to tell them what had happened or oh I don't remember because this was way back in 1980 shortly after the book the book came out I I probably did because in those days I was so excited to get a fan letter I never had any idea that the book would become popular it didn't hit the bestseller list until eight years after it was published because the the uh, Publishers wouldn't support it with any marketing or, or advertising because they thought no one would ever want to read a book on, on depression. Mm. Uh, so when I'd get a, an e- a letter, it was days before email, I would get so excited and I would try to contact the person and sometimes talk to them for an hour or two on the telephone thinking <laughs> this might be the, the only fan I ever have. <laughs> I, I'm sure I, I did write, write, write back. Well, speaking of that, this might be a good chance to start talking about the cognitive distortions and, you know, like the idea that this might be the only fan that you ever have. Um, what are, what are we talking about in terms of now we've established pretty well? Um, the way I think about things is going to determine how I feel. Yeah. And, and yet there are these, distorted ways of thinking about the world that really have an enormously negative impact on our ability to function and interact. This was one of the um, kind of amazing ideas of cognitive therapy that at first I I didn't quite, quite grasp, but uh, the uh, early cognitive therapists like uh, Albert Ellis from New York and then Aaron Beck, at University of Pennsylvania, who who I learned it from, were claiming not only do your thoughts create all of your moods, but when you're upset, like when you're depressed, when you're anxious, when you feel ashamed or uh, excessively angry or hopeless, not only are those feelings created by your thoughts and not by the circumstances of your life, but those negative thoughts will generally be distorted and, and illogical. That when you're depressed, you're fooling yourself. You're telling yourself things that simply aren't true. And that depression and anxiety are really the world's oldest cons. And back when I first began uh, learning about cognitive therapy from him, when I was a psychiatric resident and postdoctoral fellow, he had about four distortions, uh, as I recall, uh, and he had big, big names for them. Uh, and, and then I kind of added uh, some to those. And, and I used to talk to my patients about all or nothing thinking and overgeneralization and self-blame and the different ones. And once I was having a session with a patient and he said, why don't you list the, your 10 distortions and hand it out to, to patients? He said it would make it so much easier for us. And I thought, wow, that is a cool idea. And I wrote, ran home that night after work, and I made the list of the 10 cognitive distortions, and that's what led to my book, Feeling Good. And my list of 10 cognitive distortions, it's probably been reproduced in magazines and by, by therapists all over the world. I would imagine 
easily millions of times and, and probably tens of millions of times. But there, there are 10 dis distortions. Like number one is all or nothing thinking, black or white thinking. It's where you, you, you think about yourself in black or white terms. Shades of gray don't exist. So if you're not a total success, you think that you're a complete failure or you tell yourself you're defective. Uh, I, I gave a workshop with uh, Dr. Beck at one of the professional con conferences like the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. Cognitive therapy had just come out and Beck is not a very good public speaker and I was kind of a novice also at the time and we had a half-day workshop and you know, there were a few hundred therapists there and it was okay but it wasn't great and they started challenging us because nobody liked the idea of cognitive therapy initially it was kind of scorned and looked down on and uh, and we got defensive and and then afterwards I said to Dr. Beck or Dr. Beck looked at me said David you look like you're feeling down what's the, what's the problem and and I said, well, to tell you the truth, Dr. Beck, I thought we were kind of below average in this, this presentation, and I'm feeling upset about that. And he said, oh, well, you should, uh, if we were below average, you, th you should thank your lucky stars. And I said, why should I thank my lucky stars if we were below average? And he said, because average is the halfway point. And so, by definition, we have to be below average half the time. And so we can thank our lucky stars that we got the below average one out of the way and we'll look forward to above average one uh, next time we present. And suddenly my discouragement disappeared. And he was just modeling thinking in shades of gray, whereas I'd been thinking in black and white terms. Mm. And all or nothing thinking is very common in depression. Uh, and it's also the cause of all perfectionism, thinking if you're not the greatest, you know, second best or average just just is not good enough it's either you know the world or nothing perfection or failure and it creates tremendous problems uh, yeah and i could see that also coming up in terms of comparisons like if well so and so is already doing this thing and so i can't i can't possibly do that because it's so-and-so's domain, as if like one person could own the domain for the entire world in any particular area. Well, yeah, that's another mental trick that we play on ourselves with the distortions I call mental filtering and discounting the positive. And you see this all the time in, when you're feeling inferior and, and comparing yourself to other people. Uh, mental filter is where you focus on all of your flaws, thinking about all of your errors, I did a, uh, and you, you don't think about what's good about you or, or what's beautiful about you. I, I did a TV show, finally, when the book gained popularity in Cincinnati, and it was a morning show, and they had a live audience and a band, and he was interviewing me, and it was, it was exciting for me because it was one of the first times I had any media exposure. And then after the show, the host said, Dr. Burns, could I talk to you for, for a minute? And this often happens to me when I'm on a radio or TV show because the people in the media have tremendous pressures on them, and they often also feel that they're not good enough. And, and I said, sure, I, I'd love to. And what, what's the issue? He says, well, after every 
morning show, I get about 350 fan mails, uh, fan, fan letters or calls or whatever. And he said, they're 99.9% positive. Uh, but there, every day I'll get one critical letter, one critical feedback. And I dwell on that one constantly and make, make myself miserable and, and ignore all the other positive feedback. And that's called uh, metal filter because you just you filter out all the good stuff and you just focus on, on your flaws. And a lot of the people listening to the show right now d d do that. And then an even bigger uh, mental error is called discounting the positive when you, you say that the good things about you don't, don't even count. And you may have done this to yourself. When someone gives you a compliment, you might s tell yourself, oh, they're just saying that to be nice to me. Uh, they don't really mean it. And so you discount that that positive uh, that positive experience. Uh, I had yeah. a, co a colleague who who got upset uh, wh when he when he recently won the Nobel Prize. One of my college roommates, and the reason he got upset is he said they haven't recognized my best work yet. <laughs> <laughs> So those are three of the ten distortions. Yes, and um, one of my favorites, I think, comes next on your list, at least the list I'm looking at, after discounting the positive, which is the ways that we jump to conclusions. Uh, right. There's two two common patterns here. Jumping to conclusions is uh, jumping to conclusions that aren't warranted by the by the facts. And mind reading and fortune telling are two of the commonest ones. Now, fortune telling is where you make a prediction about the future, an arbitrary prediction about the future. And all anxiety results from fortune telling, telling yourself that something terrible is about to happen. Uh, like when I get on that plane, I just know it'll run into turbulence and crash. And so you feel panic and anxiety. Uh, Depressed people do fortune-telling as well. Uh, hopelessness results from predicting that things will never change. Mm -hmm. My problems will never, be will never get solved. I I'm going to be miserable forever. And almost every depressed patient thinks that way. And that's actually why many people with depression commit suicide, because they have the illogical belief that their mood will never improve, that they're the one untreatable person. Mind reading is the other common form of jumping to conclusions, and this is real common in social anxiety, but Neil, I'm sure you see it in a lot of people with relationship problems. Absolutely. But mind reading is where you assume you know how other people are thinking and feeling without any evidence, without any data. I used to struggle with intense social anxiety among my many other fears and phobias that I've had and overcome over the years. But, but the anxious person, say you're at a social gathering and you think, oh, these people you know, won't be interested in what I have to say and, and, and they never feel anxious and I, I'm the only one who, who feels in, insecure. Uh, and, and then you also may have the thought, oh, they can see how anxious I am and they're going to be real, real turned off by me. 
And then what happens is is that when you start talking to someone, you you get really busy worrying about how how they're not going to be interested in you. And so you try to think up something clever or interesting to say while they're talking. Mm -hmm. And then when they're done, instead of repeating what they said and expressing an interest in what they said, you kind of make the little speech you had prepared. That turns the other person off because they think, wow, David isn't, doesn't seem interested in me. I was just telling him about my son who was just accepted to Harvard, and, and now he's talking about something else. And so that person pretty quickly loses interest in, in you and says, oh, I have to talk to so-and-so on the other side of the room. And then you, the shy person, get rejected again, which is what you thought was going to happen. So although these distortions you're thinking in an unrealistic way, they sometimes feel like self-fulfilling prophecies so you don't realize that you're that you're fooling yourself. Right, because when you're in it, then you get you seem to be getting plenty plenty of evidence that it's true. Yes, and another form of evidence comes to another distortion, one the a name I made made up called emotional reasoning, where you reason from your feelings. And you see this in angry interactions. You, you see that in anxiety and, and in depression. So the depressed patient is giving themselves the, all these messages like, I'm a loser, I'm no good, and, and beating up on yourself. And then you feel ashamed and guilty and worthless and inferior and, and inadequate. And then you say, well, I feel like a loser, so I must really be one. Mm. Reasoning from your emotions, thinking your emotions somehow reflect reality. Uh, And that thought, by the way, uh, is one we skipped over, over overgeneralization. That's number two on the list, actually, right after all or nothing thinking. And overgeneralization is when – I mean, this is a Buddhist thing, really, overgeneralization. It's where you generalize to yourself from some specific event. So, for example, on my, I, I have a free training for Bay Area psychotherapists every Tuesday evening at, at, at Stanford. And you don't have to be a Stanford student to come. Just I give unlimited free psychotherapy training to, uh, to therapists uh, who, who, who can come to my Tuesday group. And any of the listeners or therapists and you're in the Bay Area on a Tuesday, uh, email me and you're welcome to attend my my Tuesday training group. And then I also have uh, free hikes every Sunday morning, and we go out hiking for maybe three and a half hours on the trails around my home, and I treat people for free on the hikes, and we do training. And one one of the uh, uh, women on, on the Sunday hike, and I'll, I mean, I'll keep it vague to protect her identity, but she just had a problem with her boyfriend, and they, and they broke up. And then she was telling herself, I, I'm inadequate, kind of, I'm, I'm unlovable kind of thing. And, you know, this was my fault and I, I, I must have been doing, doing something wrong. And, and you see, when you think like that, and most of us do when we're upset, you're gen- she's generalizing from this event that, that didn't work out with, with her boyfriend to then this global idea that I'm inadequate. There's something wrong with me, as if you had a self that, that wasn't good enough. Mm. And then people also say, I'll be alone forever. 
uh, I'm, I'm unlovable. Uh, this is always happening to me. And that's all overgeneralization where you generalize from a, a negative event and you see it as, as a never-ending pattern of defeat. Uh, and you also see it as evidence that, that you're somehow defective or not good enough. And when you're thinking these things, they seem so true, just as believable as the fact that there's skin on your hand. And, and you don't realize that you're fooling yourself. And so that the, the pain that, that, that you feel is, is just uh, incredible. And I know that of the many people listening to this show right now, uh, you, you, I'm sure you can identify this with this, that, that you've had thoughts like that, and you know how real and, and painful the, these feelings are. Uh, it, it's, it's one of the worst forms of human suffering, but the good news is, uh, and we haven't gotten around to that, but not only are there fantastic techniques cognitive therapy techniques that we've been uh, talking about from my book Feeling Good, described in there, or my Feeling Good handbook, that that you can overcome these distorted thoughts and get back to joy and self-esteem quickly. But also in my group at Stanford over the ten years, past 10 years, we've created even more powerful uh, techniques and to, to help bring about really high-speed recovery for people struggling with, with depression and, and, and anxiety. And the new techniques are, are way more powerful than the original uh, cognitive therapy, although those methods are still, still fabulous. But maybe we'll have time to talk about uh, some of these. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering... I'm but wondering more if we... There's distortions to cover, yeah. Yeah, so maybe what we could do, because... Um, I'd love to balance this out, and and I want to ensure that we cover the other distortions. We have yeah, maybe too. four yeah. more, and at the same time, maybe let's break from the distortions just to like change things up a bit, and and start entertaining that question of all right, I'm yeah, I'm I relate to some or all of of yeah. these um, that we've even listed so far. So, um, so what are some of the initial steps that someone could take? Because where I tend to go with this is like, well, these belief patterns, like, you know, you talked about, I'm, I'm unlovable as one, those seem to emerge from a place that's, that's immutable, like where it's something that's really deep in someone's psyche. And yet you're suggesting that there's ways to transform that that are really quick and direct and and give someone a, a, a felt experience of the truth that's not that thing. Yeah, yeah that's right. And the, the, you, you could group the techniques into uh, cognitive techniques to crush these distorted thoughts and, and motivational techniques to, to uh, get, get rid of your uh, – to bring your resistance to change – to conscious awareness and melt away the resistance, so so the patients become incredibly motivated to to crush their thoughts. The an example of the the way the cognitive techniques work. What is crucial, and this was one of the first things uh, when we when we first created cognitive therapy in the mid 1970s, was to write the negative thoughts on a piece of paper. It's a very humble thing to do. But it can be dramatically effective because then you can look at the list of 10 distortions. 
and immediately pinpoint the distortions, and that makes it much easier to talk back to these destructive thoughts and kind of poke holes in them. Uh, when when I, I'll give you an example in my own personal life because I've used these techniques my, myself, and if they hadn't worked. For me, I never would have become a cognitive therapist and, and now, a, you know, a team CBT therapist. But when I was a uh, postdoctoral fellow, I used to go to Dr. Beck's weekly seminars and I would present all my most difficult cases and, and get tips from him on, on how to treat these people with the, the, the what was then the, the rapidly emerging brand new cognitive therapy. And it was an exciting time. Uh, but one one day, I, I I talked to him about a patient that wasn't paying the bill, and that I'd had kind of a bad session with this patient, and asked him for some guidance. And he actually was pretty critical of the way I had dealt with this patient. And I became awfully upset. I got depressed and anxious, and I was uh, riding home on on the train, and my head was filled with negative thoughts and negative feelings. And when I got home, I, I, I told myself, well, David, you probably better run, go on a long six-mile run and get your brain endorphins up so you get over your depression. Because those were the days when everyone was believing the, the phony baloney that, that somehow exercise boosts brain endorphins and will reduce depression. Uh So I went out on this long run, and the longer I ran – the more believable my negative thoughts became. <laughs> and I was I said, David, what are you telling yourself? And I said, oh, I'm a worthless human being. I have no therapeutic skills. Uh, I'm going to be banned from the state of Pennsylvania. No, they'll take away my medical license. I have no future in, in psychiatry. I'm, I'm a worthless human being. I'm a bad person. Stuff like that. And it seemed overwhelmingly true. And I said, are, are there some distortions in your thoughts, David? Look for the distortions, like what you tell your, your patients. I said, no, there are no distortions in my thoughts. <laughs> this is just real. And I was telling myself, it's so weird that here you're something like 30 years old or however old I was, 31. It took you all of this time in your life to realize what a horrible loser you are. And it's as if I had seen the truth for the first time. And it was devastating. And then when I got home, I said, David, why don't you write your thoughts on a piece of paper? That's what you make all of your patients do. And I said, oh, no, no, my thoughts are real. That wouldn't do any good. And then I told myself, but isn't that the same way you're whining, just like your patients whine and resist? Uh, and you force them to, to write their thoughts down on a piece of paper. You tell them they have to do that. Why don't you try that, David? And I said, no, no, it wouldn't do any good. My, I really am a worthless human being. This, this is true. And then, then I said, no, no, David, you're still resisting. Take out a piece of paper and, and do what, what you tell your patients to do. So I said, oh, okay, I'll do it just to prove that it won't work. So I wrote my thoughts down. I, number one, I'm, I'm a worthless human being. Number two, I have no therapy skill. Number three, I, I screwed up with this patient. Uh, number four, they'll take away my medical license, stuff like that. I, I wrote down four or five thoughts, and then I said, now, are there any distortions? I looked at my own list of ten distortions. I said, wow, those thoughts are pretty distorted. It's all or nothing <laughs> thinking, you know, black and white thinking, like I'm not allowed to make a mistake with the patient. Uh, it's overgeneralization. 
I'm generalizing from the fact that I, I screwed up with this patient in a session to I'm a worthless human being. I, I have no, and it's fortune telling. I have no future in psychiatry. Uh, you know, jumping to conclusions. Oh, self blame, hidden should statements. That's another distortion. I shouldn't have screwed up. I should always be be perfect. Uh, it was emotional reasoning. I feel worthless, so I must be worthless. And I suddenly saw those distortions. And then I said, now, can I write a positive thought to challenge these negative thoughts? That, that's the other part of the exercise. First, you write the negative thought, then you identify the distortions, and then you write a, a positive thought. And the positive thought has to be 100% true. Rationalizations and half-truths will never help a human being. And I came up with, with this positive thought. Uh, the, I said, David, you're just a beginner. And you have the right to make mistakes. In fact, even when you're 75 years old, years from now, and, and you're, you might be a great therapist, but you'll still make mistakes and, and, and learn from them. And that's part of the, part, part of the territory. Uh, and and the, you're ab absolutely, absolutely permitted to, to do that. And, and instead of beating up on yourself, why don't you talk it over? with your patient tomorrow and tell him that you made a mistake and, and, and see if you can re repair that, that rupture in, in your relationship with the patient. And all of a sudden I said, is that true? Yeah, that thought is a hundred percent true. Now how much do I believe this rubbish that I'm a worthless human being and all of that. And my belief in those negative thoughts went to zero and my negative feelings just disappeared in a flash entirely. And I said, wow, this shit is pretty good. This, is, this, this really works. I hope you don't have to edit out that word. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. But, uh, and then uh, the next day I saw the patient and I said, you know, Mark, I, I've been feeling terrible last, since last session and kind of ashamed because I, I don't think I, I treated you right. And uh, I, I, I was putting pressure on you because of the unpaid balance. And I didn't put any uh, emphasis on, on your suffering and what's going on with you as a human being and, and I just uh, imagine you felt so hurt and angry with me and and discouraged and I'm, I'm just overjoyed that you, you came came back today rather than dropping out of therapy so we we can talk it over and see if we can deepen our relationship and he just loved that and we had the best session ever he gave me perfect uh, empathy scores at, at the end of the session but that that's just just an example uh, from my personal life, and and I'm sure the people here can uh, uh, can relate to that. But I've developed probably 50 or 100 techniques for crushing ne negative thoughts, and and I've made it sound easy, but it it isn't always easy because you might be very very trapped in your negative thoughts, and and you might have to try several of the different techniques before you find the one that that, that works works for you. So I want to be encouraging to the listeners and to therapists who may be listening, but I also don't want to make it sound like something uh, overly, overly simple or overly simplistic because it's really a pretty high-powered, uh, sophisticated uh, t t type of, of therapy. Fortunately, many people can make it work work on their own. But anyway, that's the half of it, uh, half of the uh, 
treatment breakthroughs, and that was called the cognitive revolution, and my book, Feeling Good, really helped to usher that in. When Feeling Good came out in 1980, cognitive therapy was virtually unknown, and there were just a handful of cognitive therapists in the world. Uh, now it's become the most popular form of psychotherapy in the world and the most researched form of psychotherapy in all of uh, the history of psychology and psychiatry. And and just to talk about like the importance of actually going through that exercise and writing it down, and maybe you could just talk for like one more minute about why that part is so important. Why is it important to actually write that stuff down versus to do it in your head? I, I think that the the negative the power of the human mind to be negative is very very profound, and the negative thoughts are kind of like a snake eating its tail. They they go round and round, and one leads to the next. In the early days, I, I used to try to do cognitive therapy without the written exercise, and to this day, new therapists still try to do that. They they think they're too fancy that writing things down is too simplistic or something like that, and they're going to be deep and just do verbal, you know, deep stuff with people. But but the problem is the human mind is so clever at, at each distortion kind of reinforces another one, and each negative thought kind of reinforces another one, and you go round and round and round. And that's why doing it verbally or in your head when you're alone is rarely going to be effective. But when you write the negative thoughts down one at a time and number them with short sentences, that makes it much easier to, to identify the distortions in them and turn them around. There are three rules of thumb. In There's an art form to, to writing them down. I mean, everything is more sophisticated than I make it sound in a brief interview. Uh, there, there's a lot of rules uh, of the game. For example, when you're writing down negative thoughts, you should never put an, an emotion or an event. Like people have a negative thought like, Trisha rejected me and I feel terrible. Well, that's not a negative thought. That's an event. Trisha rejected me, and I've, I use a form called the daily mood log, and at the top, you put the event. And then you circle all of your emotions and put how strong they are between zero and a hundred. So I, emotions might be feel guilty, ashamed, lonely, depressed, you know, worthless. And then the negative thought would be the interpretation of that event like, I must be unlovable, uh, I'll be alone forever. And then those are things that have distortions. Mm-hmm. A second rule is don't ever put rhetorical questions in the negative thought column. So if you say something like, oh, why am I like this? Why am I so anxious in social situations? Or what's wrong with me? Well, you can't disprove questions. So instead, you can substitute the hidden claim behind the question, which is generally a a hidden should statement. Like, uh, I shouldn't be like this, or uh, I must be defective because I'm so anxious in social situations or, or some such thing. And there are probably one or two other uh, rules of the game. In my book, When Panic Attacks, which is one of my newer books, 
on all the anxiety disorders. Feeling good is on depression when panic attack is on all of the different kinds of anxiety. And I think the third chapter shows how to fill out the daily mood log and what, what the rules are to follow to enhance uh, the, the effectiveness of, of it so you'll be more likely to have a successful experience. Great. And the idea is that it's simply by doing this process that the things shift. It's not like there's like you go through the process and then maybe you would track your mood afterwards and see, wow, like I'm actually feeling better than I was before just by simply doing that. Well, a lot of people can can feel better just by doing it, but there will, you know, that the research has shown the two thirds of people just by reading feeling good can they can improve a lot in depression. But some people need the help of a therapist, and, and there's yeah. it isn't true that everyone has to do it do it on your own. Sometimes you you need another person to get that that leverage to uh, to pop out of it. Another thing that's helpful when you're writing down your negative thoughts is is Beck's theory of cognitive specificity, and you see, Buddha said our thoughts create our emotions. But Beck took it to the next level and said different patterns of thoughts create uh, different types of emotions. And so if you're feeling guilty, you're probably telling yourself that you're a bad person or that you violated your value system. If you're feeling hopeless, you're definitely telling yourself that um, things will never change, something like that. I'll be miserable forever. If you're feeling anxious, you're, you're definitely telling yourself something awful is about to happen. When I get on that show with Neil, I'll screw up, I'll, my mind will go, go blank, you know, that, that type of thing. When you're feeling sad, you're telling yourself or depressed that you've lost something central to your self-esteem. When you're feeling angry, you're telling yourself that someone else is a loser, that they're treating you unfairly, that they shouldn't be that way. And so these rules can also help individuals pinpoint your, your negative thoughts. So once you see what the emotions are, then you know the kind of thoughts uh, to, to look for. And, and, and one last thing is, is, is sometimes people say, oh, I don't know what my negative thoughts are. Uh, and I just say, well, just make some up. <laughs> and then write them down and number them and then I say oh, are your thoughts like this and they say oh that's exactly what I'm thinking <laughs> so uh, those, those are a few tips on uh, refining you know the, the part with, with, with the negative thoughts there are a couple things that jumped out at me one was as you were as you were describing the distortions that we've already talked about I it popped into my head that this is often at the source of most conflict that happens in couples that either one person is is having distorted thinking or one person is protecting themselves from from their own distorted thinking. So for example, um, your partner says something and you have this feeling like, well, that's not true. Like I'm going to, I got to defend myself from right. that accusation. That's so, right, so you jump into this place of conflict. That's all about proving that this meant this negative concept you suddenly are perceiving about yourself isn't true when that negative concept in and of itself might be an example of you just having a distortion like for instance my partner is mad at me so that must mean i'm a hor they think i'm a horrible human being 
Yeah, that it's huge what you just said. Um, there, when we're in conflict with people, there's a lot of inner uh, chatter going on. In addition to the verbal altercations, the arguing, the the, the escalation, the the defensiveness, and some of the distortions will be focused on the other person, and some of the distortions will be focused on yourself. And you see all all of the ten cognitive distortions in relationship conflict, but they they have a little bit of a different function, I would say. Now, let's say you're angry. You know, Mary is angry at her husband, Sam. She's ticked off. And then if you look at her thoughts, they have all 10 distortions. Uh, like she'll tell her, her herself things like she might be thinking, oh, he's a loser. He's a, all he cares about is himself. The relationship problems are all his fault. He'll, he'll never change, uh, that, that type of thing. And so you see all or nothing thinking, uh, mind reading, you know, imagining how, how he's thinking. You, you see blame. You see hidden should statements. He shouldn't be like that. He, he shouldn't uh, fe- feel like that. Uh, you, you see discounting the positive, uh, mental filtering, uh, overgeneralization, magnification, minimization. You see all the same 10 distortions. The only difference is that when you're depressed, and I, and I can show you that your thoughts about yourself are distorted, and it's not true that you're a loser. You're, you're going to love me, the therapist. You're going to appreciate that, and you're going to uh, feel better and recover from your depression. When people are in conflict and we're, we're having distorted thoughts about the other person, we're generally not motivated to challenge those, those distortions because they make us feel good. We feel kind of morally superior to, to the other person. And so I, I, I don't generally work with people too much on, on changing their distortions about others because, because they don't want to hear it. If, if the therapist points out to this woman that her thoughts about her husband are causing her to be upset, not her husband's behavior, and in addition that her thoughts about her husband are all wrong, 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 they're all distorted, <laughs> she'll just fire the therapist and drop out of therapy, and she'll have two enemies, her loser of a husband and her loser of a therapist. So that's why I developed some of the techniques we talked about in the last uh the, the last podcast we did uh, on, on relationships, I, I kind of use slightly different strategies. But you're right, those distortions are incredibly positive. And the other kind of distortion you have when you're in conflict is if, if someone's criticizing you, again, you may start thinking, this shows that I'm a loser, I'm no good, uh, I, 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 I should be better than I, I am. Uh, if, they're, if you're criticizing me, it, that, that's a very dangerous and terrible situation. And by attending to those kind of thoughts that make you feel anxious and ashamed and inferior and guilty and inadequate, then you can modify those and then do much better in the way you communicate with the other person because your your ego isn't on the line. Hmm. And an example with me is in, in my teaching, I always get feedback uh, from every class I do, every student I, I I mentor or supervise, from every workshop, and I get it right away. I don't get it six months from now. I get it the very day that I'm that I'm teaching, and I get all kinds of uh, cri- criticisms on the feedback forms I've developed. Even if I have a tremendous uh, teaching seminar, 
I'll get a lot of uh, criticisms, especially if they feel safe to criticize the teacher. And I find that if, if, I, if I don't beat myself up with inner dialogue, then I can find the truth in what the student is saying and, 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 and treat that person with warmth and, and with, with respect uh, and, and, and with enthusiasm even. And then they, they suddenly really love the way that I've handled their criticism and it le leads to a better relationship. And that's true between partners or, or in families as, as well. And so that inner dialogue that's where we're targeting ourselves and making ourselves needlessly anxious and defensive and hurt and, and angry and you know worthless when when we're in conflict with someone that 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 can be adjusted and modified uh, to, to really enhance relationships so the two um, distortions that we hadn't really covered yet you you just mentioned them and I I thought I I mean we've we've mentioned them all at this point but um, some of them like blaming whether it's blaming yourself for um, a situation or blaming others for a situation. That seems a little self-evident. I'm curious if you could talk for a moment about labeling and then also magnification and minimization, just because I think those are the two that we yeah. we and listed but didn't or, really cover. We, we shoulds? Let's mention them. And um, I think, again, that might be something that's a little more understandable for people, but yeah, oh, yeah. let's okay. do those. Yeah, well... Um, Labeling is just an extreme form of overgeneralization. It, it's where you say, I'm a loser, or of someone else, you know, he's a jerk, where you see yourself or another person as this bad glob, so to speak. And so instead of focusing on specific behaviors, you, you're focusing on, on the self. And, and when you think of yourself as a loser or, or a hopeless case, uh, it, it, it creates tremendous pain. And when you label someone else as a jerk or a loser, it creates rage. And then you often treat them in a hostile way. And then they treat you in a hostile way. And you say, oh, uh, I know he was a loser. And you don't realize you're involved in a self-fulfilling prophecy and you're creating the other person's, you're contributing to or creating the other person's hostile behavior. Magnification and minimization is pretty self-evident where you're blowing things out of proportion, like procrastinators do that. Uh, you think about all you have to do, all the filing that you're behind on, and and, and it, it, it feels like you have to climb climb Mount Everest and you get overwhelmed. And then minimization, you, you're telling yourself, oh, you know, just working on that for five or ten minutes would be a drop in the bucket it wouldn't make a difference and, and so you don't uh, get started on the on the project uh, so we've done those two uh, the should statements I, I think is very subtle and not obvious to people at all great that we we have we beat up on ourselves with shoulds and shouldn'ts and oughts and musts and, and we're saying, I, I shouldn't have screwed up. I shouldn't have made that mistake. I, I should be, be better than I am. That creates a tremendous amount of suffering. And shoulds go back, if you look at the origin uh, in the English dictionary, maybe we did this in our last podcast, I don't recall. But if you one of these thick dictionaries, you'll, you'll find the origin of the word should is the Anglo-Saxon word skolde, S-C-O-L-D-E, where you're scolding yourself or another person, where you're saying, wow. 
partner, you know, you, you shouldn't feel that way or you shouldn't believe that. And we see that politically, too. People are always blaming someone they're not in agreement with and throwing should statements at, at them. Uh, Albert Ellis has called that the shouldy approach to life, which is kind of a cheap joke, I guess, but it, it contains it contains a lot of truth. Uh, the feminist psychiatrist Karen Horney, who actually I think was born in the 1890s, did beautiful work on shoulds. When my mother, uh, when we moved to Phoenix from Denver, I think my mother got depressed and she read a book by Karen Horney on the tyranny of the shoulds, how we give ourselves all these should statements and make us feel like we're not good enough and we're not measuring up to our own expectations and create so much much suffering and I think that book was 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 very helpful to her and then Albert Ellis in New York saw that uh, he argued and I think rightly so that most human suffering uh, is is the result of the the shoulds that we impose on ourselves or the should statements that we impose on on others well, if that's true, then maybe that should be what we take a moment to attack. And I'm wondering if you have a a powerful crushing technique that works with shoulds, whether it's, and maybe it would be a little bit different, the ones that we wield against ourselves versus, you know, so-and-so should know or should have done this differently or... Right. Yeah. Well, a lot of the uh, overcoming it has to do with a mystical spiritual concept of, 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 of acceptance. Accepting your, yourself as a flawed human being is really the source of enlightenment. But we fight against acceptance because we think it's like giving in and, 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 and settling for, for second best. And so we continue to beat up on ourselves, thinking if we hit ourselves with enough should statements, we'll, we'll somehow achieve perfection or greatness or, or, or some such thing. One thing that uh, I learned from Ellis that has been really helpful to my patients is, is that there's only three correct uses of the word should in the English language. Uh, there, there's the uh, moral shoulds, like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not kill. There's the uh, laws of the universe should, where if I drop a pen right now, it should fall to the earth because of the force of gravity. And then there's the legal should. You should not drive down the highway at 90 miles an hour because that's against the law and you'll get a ticket. Now, I had a, a colleague who came on one of the hikes who had has a, a, a developmentally uh, challenged uh, child, say a son, just to, to disguise things a little bit, and she's from a very high-achieving family, Silicon Valley family, just to say, say the least. Uh, she and her husband are, are giants, uh, ge geniuses. And, and then she went to the grammar school for the parents' day, and, and they, they had all the kids, and they have their daughter in some very expensive private school, and the kids' pictures were up on the wall. And then she saw her son's uh, picture, and it was just kind of very primitive uh, compared with the other children who were, you know, real high-powered children from high-powered families. And her, her son 
struggles severely uh, to, and, 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 and then she saw that and she felt a feeling of shame. And then she told herself, I should not feel ashamed of my son. And so that's hitting herself with a should statement, which kind of, it's like she doesn't have permission to have this, this, this emotion, and that's what we do to ourselves. Uh, and, and that's not a legal should. It's not illegal to feel ashamed of, of yourself or your son. She, then she was also, of course, feeling ashamed of herself. It's not immoral, and it doesn't violate the laws of the universe. And so a simple technique that El, Ellis suggested, uh, and it's, it's so simple, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. Instead of saying, I, I shouldn't, you can just say, it would, it would, it would be preferable-ish if, or I would prefer it if, or uh, it would be better if. So you can say it, you know, it would be better, you know, it would be preferable if I, if I didn't feel ashamed of my, of my son. But that's a human feeling, and probably other parents feel upset with their children. They feel ashamed sometimes of their kids or angry with their, their, their kids. And so it's giving yourself permission to be human, and that's called the acceptance paradox. And the paradox is sometimes when you accept your broken nature, accept your flaws and shortcomings, you transcend them. And I've often written that acceptance is the greatest change a human being can make. But it's elusive. And Buddha tried to teach this 2,500 years ago when I saw on TV, and I don't know if it was just a goofy program, but it was on PBS, that he had over 100,000 followers in his lifetime and only three achieved enlightenment. And I think it was frustrating to him and, and disappointing, but I, I can see it clearly because what he was teaching was so simple and basic, and yet it's hard for us to grasp it. And that's why I love doing therapy because we've got powerful new techniques now where I can bring my patients to enlightenment, often in a single therapy session. If I have uh, you know more than an hour, if I have a two-hour session, I can usually complete treatment in about about a session and see the patient going from all this self-criticism and self-hatred and misery to actually joy and, and euphoria. And it's you know it's one of the greatest experiences a human being can have because when my patient has a transforming experience then it transforms me at the same time can you can you give us a taste of what some of the more powerful new techniques are and how they might work in these yeah. circumstances yeah they're 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 pretty anti-intuitive and it took me many years of clinical practice before I, I kind of figured it out and before it, it kind of dawned on me. And I would say it's, it's very few therapists know, know how, to, how to do this, and it's absolutely against the grain of the way therapists have been trained and the general public have been trained to think about depression and anxiety as brain disorders. Uh, you know, the DSM calls them mental disorders. And we've gone in the opposite direction, and, and I do... I'll just make it real quick because we're, we're getting kind of long and on people's time here, I'm afraid. But the, when, when I am working with a person, uh, like um, last night, at my Tuesday group, we were working with a therapist and, and uh, someone who's in training to become a therapist. And she was being very 
very self-critical and telling herself she wasn't smart enough and and you know just beating up on herself and saying that she was defective and she she should be better at this and she she should this and she shouldn't that and, and she she, her, she was feeling like you know 90% depressed and 80% ashamed and intensely anxious and one thing we do I do before I, I, and she had all these negative thoughts, I'm defective, and I don't have the list in my hand, but she had about 17 very self-critical thoughts. And then after I empathized, and my co-therapist was, was Jill Levitt, uh, a clinical psychologist who I teach with at Stanford, and Jill is just a, a gem. I just She's fantastically brilliant and kind and compassionate and humble. And after we empathized with this uh, individual, and, and I'll just keep it vague because most therapists feel exactly the same way, so I won't give any identifying details, but we asked this young woman, would she like some help today with her depression and anxiety? And, you know, if we had a magic button on the table and she pressed it, all her negative thoughts and feelings would instantly disappear. Would she press the magic button? She said, oh, yeah, that would be wonderful. I've, she, I guess she's felt this way on and off throughout her life since she was a little girl that she's somehow not not good enough. And then, I, then we said, well, we have no magic button, but we have amazing techniques. But before we use these techniques – Maybe we should ask, what do your negative thoughts and feelings show about you that's beautiful and awesome? And also, what are some benefits to you in having all of these negative thoughts and feelings? And she was very puzzled by that at first, as most therapists are. Like, how could there be benefits from having depression? We learn that's some kind of mental disorder, major depressive disorder, dysthymic disorder, you know, all these fancy names pretending that these are, are mental illnesses of some kind. And, but then she, she, got in, she got in the flow. We primed the pump a little bit, and she, and she was able to, to come up with a list of 20 overwhelming benefits to her and beautiful things about her that were revealed by her negative thoughts and feelings. For example, when she says, I'm, de I'm defective, she's able to say, well, it shows that I'm, I'm honest and accountable because I do have many flaws. Mm -hmm. And then a second benefit was this shows that I have high standards. I was able to say, do you have high standards? She said, absolutely. I said, have your high standards motivated you to work hard and accomplish a lot? And she said, oh, yeah, absolutely. So that was a third benefit. And then a fourth benefit is, is uh, her self-criticism so, showed that she's a humble person. So that was the fourth benefit, or the fourth beautiful thing it showed about her. And, and then we pointed out that humility is the same as spirituality. So her self-criticism shows that she's a humble and spiritual person. And then uh, her, 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 her sadness showed, showed her passion for, for what she hopes to achieve, which, which is a role as, as a therapist and a good therapist. And, and, and her self-doubt keeps her, her on her toes and, and motivates her to, to, to work really hard. And, uh, and her suffering uh, shows, uh, enhances her compassion for, for, for others. And her shame shows that she has a, a good value system, a good moral compass, and on and on and on. And then we came up with 
a list of, you know, when we got to 20 benefits of her negative thoughts and feelings, uh, then we simply said to her, well, maybe we don't want to press that magic button because when your negative thoughts and feelings disappear, then all these other good things will disappear as, as well. Well, why in the world would you want to do that? You see, and so we have become the role of her subconscious mind, and the therapist is paradoxically arguing for the status quo and not arguing for change. Mm. And the therapist's attempt to help or change the patient is actually the cause of nearly all therapeutic failure, both in the treatment of depression and anxiety, as well as in your specialty area, which is relationship uh, conflicts. And then we d did a little thing to help her resolve this conflict called the magic dial, uh, which is instead of pressing a magic button and making them all disappear, maybe it's appropriate to have some negative feelings from, from time to time. And, and how depressed would you want to feel when you walk out of the, the room tonight at the end of the evening? Maybe you don't need 90% to have the benefits of the sadness and the depression. What, what would be a good level? What, what, what would you like it to be? And she said, well, maybe 20% uh, would be enough. And then, yeah, okay, so we make that her goal. We'll reduce it to 20 and then she wanted to reduce her anxiety to, you know, like 15 and reduce the shame to five and reduce the anger to 15 and, and these different goals we set for her. And then I said, okay, we'll reduce them to just that level, but no higher. Now you have to be careful because the techniques are so powerful that we're going to use now that your depression may go below 20, may get all the way to zero or five, but don't worry. If, if we overshoot before the end of the evening, I'll help you work your depression back up to 20, you know, <laughs> type of thing. And then she started laughing. But at this point, we've, we've made a deal with her subconscious mind, and then she's in control. We're not imp imposing our values on her. She's saying, I'm willing to go to this level. And then at that point, we're generally five or ten minutes away from total enlightenment, which is what happened last night. And she started just crushing her negative thoughts and finding the distortions in them because her subconscious mind is now giving her permission to fight these distorted thoughts. And uh, by the end of the evening, we worked with her for about two hours, including teaching about 30 therapists who were watching, teaching along the way, and, and pretty much everything went to, to zero. And at the moment of, of that she suddenly received her enlightenment, she started sobbing because she was so euphoric and ecstatic. And, 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 and at the end of the evening, it was, it was not just feeling less depressed and anxious because they all, all the feelings pretty much went to zero, but she went into a transcendent state of what I would call spiritual enlightenment. And it's just mind-blowing. And, and most therapists in the general public, they don't even know that, that these new techniques exist and that these fantastic rapid changes are possible. But that's what I see almost Every time I, I treat somebody now, and it's, 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 it's mind-boggling, and that's why I'm so great, grateful to have had the chance to be on your show today to, to try to get the word out more. I'm writing a new book about it as well, uh, that, and it'll be a tentative title will be Feeling, Feeling Great, uh, and uh, it will have all of these new positive reframing uh, and resistance-busting techniques along with the powerful cognitive techniques.
So just to step up a little bit, it sounds like the the technique that you described is all about laying the groundwork so that when you go back to doing the cognitive work, you have way less inner resistance to yeah. that change none. actually happening. Yeah, it, it, usually there, there's none. And, and, and the pati- all patients have within them, this, and everyone listening to the show right now, this powerful healing voice, but we keep it suppressed because of the, the the resistance, thinking we don't want to give up our perfectionism, for 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 example, mm. uh, and so we we think that if we keep beating up on ourselves, that's somehow honorable or or good or or, or motivating, and and that's why uh, in all of the psychotherapy outcome studies for for depression, at least fifty percent of the patients don't improve much at all, and it's because. All these schools of psychotherapy are busy throwing help at patients without stopping to think, what are some reasons this person might want to resist change? And the kinds of reasons we have come up with for resistance are all flattering to the patients. Mm-hmm. And so the, we, we make the patients proud of their symptoms, proud of their resistance. And paradoxically, when we do that, suddenly they want to change and, and and then recovery is generally just a matter of minutes away, like eight minutes or 12 minutes or something in that range. Wow. So while we wait for your new book to come out, what are the best ways for people to, to get more information about these techniques if they're, if they're not Thanks. in the Bay well, Area? On my, on my website, www.feelinggood.com. Feeling good is one word with two G's in the middle. There's tons of free resources for therapists and and general public alike. There's the Feeling Good blogs, the Feeling Good podcasts. Uh, There's all kinds of of, of stuff. I probably have at least 500 or maybe 1,000 or more pages of free resources there for for, for for folks, and I would say that's a good uh, step in the right direction, or to pick up the uh, the Feeling Good Handbook or the the Feeling Good Book, because those tools are still incredibly uh, incredibly powerful and helpful to to you know to millions millions of people in the United States and around the world as 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 well. Feeling Good is now in over well over thirty languages. It's sold. More than five million in the U.S., and I have no idea how many more worldwide. And so those techniques are still, you know, as as good as gold and really helpful uh, for for individuals. Wow. Well, we will have links to your site and your books available um, on the show notes for this episode, which you can pick up by visiting neilsatin.com slash feelinggood2. Or you can always text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions to get the transcript and action guide for this episode. Um, David, I'm wondering if we have time for one more quick question. Absolutely. Um, This is, of course, a relationship show. And a lot of what we've talked about is ways of turning the work inward, noticing the cognitive distortions that are coming up within you and how you can uh, attack them powerfully in order to neutralize their effect and actually be more present, more in the moment, and more able to have feelings that are actually based on reality and not just on something that you're making up. Um, However, you know, when I think about... um, 
when I think about hanging out with Chloe tonight, my wife, who's amazing, um, I wonder about what should I do? Not that this would ever happen, but what if I notice her saying something that, um, or let's just flip this around. What if Chloe listens to this podcast and then she notices that I'm using some sort of cognitive distortion, some distorted thinking is coming out of me? What's the best way for Chloe as my partner to avoid the pitfalls of, you know, maybe calling me out on it, but still to turn it into a generative conversation when she recognizes exactly what's going on. Oh, Neil, he's just trapped in, in uh, blame again, or not that I would ever do that, but, uh, you know, sure. a should, should statement, whatever it is. Well, I may not have the answer you're looking for here, but I do have a definite answer to that. And that I, I write books for people to help themselves not not to try to help other people or to impose these ideas on, on, on someone else. Because if you go around saying to someone, oh, you're, you're having this distorted thought or that distorted thought, it will just irritate the heck out of them. If, 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 if you have a family member or friend who's, who's depressed, you could uh, give them a copy of Feeling Good or uh, suggest they, they pick up a copy of Feeling Good and, and, and it'll probably be very helpful to them. But when when you see another person involved in distorted thinking, I, I, I think that the, the thing that you can do, and this too is helpful, hard to learn and probably would need another podcast, would be to, to empathize and, and to listen and, and to provide emotional support without trying to help or fix them or change the distortions in, in their thoughts because it's, I, I can tell you that's, it's not going to be effective to throw help or, or advice at someone who's angry with you or who's depressed and angry angry with themselves. Uh, a- empathy uh, can have a certain healing power and I think is, is about as, as far as we need to go as, as general citizens, as, uh, as partners, as, as, as family members. And I think empathy itself requires a lot of training and learning to do it skillfully. And it's a gift that the, that the world needs. We're, we're not seeing a lot of empathy and support for, for one another in the world. We're seeing a lot of attack and criticism and, and trying to change other people, trying to punish other people. And those strategies, in my opinion, are, are, are usually doomed, doomed to failure. Whereas uh, empathy and warmth and compassion is uh, is always been a, a, a gift uh, through through the ages. And I would love to have you back on the show to to chat about empathy. And in the meantime, I will make sure that if I hear any cognitive distortions, I don't go offering a magic button to. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much, uh, Neil. And uh, maybe another six months down the road or something, we'll do we'll do uh, feeling good part three. But it's always an honor for me to to work with you, and I have a tremendous res- respect for you because of the quality of, of what you bring to the interview and to the dialogue, which I just think is, is, is tremendous. Thank you so much, David, and the feeling is mutual. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. 
And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.